In this conversation with the priest, I sit down with my parish priest to discuss the rise of iconography and the role of apostolic succession in the Orthodox Church. The conversation is unscripted, so mistakes do sometimes happen. Late in the recording, we discuss a heresy called Donatism, but we mistakenly refer to it as Docetism. Just mentally switch the two names. So I, I don't know if you if you read back in, in the email. So I, you know, I I got this book. Right. You know, I saw it was coming out, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. Um, mostly because I'm looking at my family right. and thinking, you know, what's what's the easy way to get them, you know, kind of on that track of at least thinking about mm -hmm. you know some history or reconnecting with some stuff. And uh, I have found one book uh, called Retrieving the Tradition. Uh, by a guy, uh, Dr. D.H. Williams, and, uh, and I read through that, and I thought it was really good. Um, uh, you know, he asks all the right questions, he doesn't answer them, uh, which I find interesting. <laughs> but he asks all the right questions, uh, and it, it, you know, I'm, I'm reading through it and thinking, how are you not, like, not Protestant? How are you not something else, you know, asking these questions? It, it, and I'd love to ask him that, which is kind of what happened with this other book. Right. Was I, I saw this other one, it's it just out, and, uh, and I thought, okay, same vein, maybe this one, but it kind of, uh, it looked like a little different angle, a little different feel to it. But let me, uh, let's just see, you know, and uh, not nearly so. He asks, he asks a lot of the right questions, he answers them, um, and, uh, and I just answers them badly. Mm. Um, uh, but anyway, he, he made a lot of kind of, uh, you know, Right. Yeah, don't even bother with the whole, uh, you know, don't don't bother with the Catholicism, the Orthodoxy. He he lists out like here's the reasons why people convert, and, and it was just all bad spins mm. on all the possible reasons why. So he just dismissed them, and I thought, hey, this would be interesting. I'll just email the guy and just ask him. Okay, so he, I mean, you're a professor of patristics, you know, at a a a well-known seminary, and. So you deal with this stuff day in, day out. How do you not, how do you reconcile this? You know, what, what's, what am I missing? And he responded, that's, that was the response back that you saw. One of the things that I don't like, you know, especially in, in Western Christendom and in in the Protestant world and, and the Roman Catholic world is this idea of the development of doctrine. <clears throat> uh, it's a term that annoys the <laughs> not out of me. Because it, already, it, it makes the assumption that dogma can somehow change. If it, 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 the, you know, yeah. that what we believe now can be fundamentally different from what we believed 150 years ago, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. Right. Um, and that's just patently false. You can see though where, and if, if you're if you're from the Protestant viewpoint, right. you're looking at basically the Catholic Church, right? And the things that they say about uh, 
how doctrine can develop, and they always bring up uh, John Henry Newman, his famous right. whatever, which I haven't actually read, but I've seen referenced a lot. But then, you know, in the, in the whole idea that the Pope still is capable of laying down, right. you know, infallible, I guess you know, in, statements, in, yeah. yeah. Um, Though uh, many Catholic uh, apologists would say, well, it's not like he's just changing the faith. But yeah, he can't lay down definitive statements, clarifying things. Which, yeah. okay. But, and, you know, if you're reacting to Roman Catholicism, yes, you can talk about development of doctrine. However, from a patristic point of view, what we're talking about is not a development of doctrine, but rather a, a maturation process of the application of dogma, if that makes sense. Um, because all of these things that he pointed out as examples were reactions of the church to external forces. You know, for example, Irenaeus and the whole issue of who's your bishop. You know, Gnosticism. This, this comes from Gnosticism. And it's a reaction saying, okay, well, what do we believe about God? You know, how does what we believe about God get applied in the real world in a practical sense? One God, one church, one bishop. And who's your bishop? So therefore, this whole idea, this process of handing down what Christ said, you're just making up. Whereas I get my information from this guy, you know, this guy, you know, this guy, you know. So it's a, it's a reaction. And, and I'm, I'm, in the whole apostolic succession thing, while powerful is just part of it, part of the you know, whole tapestry because frankly the you know the Roman Catholics can claim it and the um, Episcopalians can claim it. So it doesn't have a whole lot as much weight now in the present day as it did yeah. back then. example is his example of iconography and I kind of was troubled by the fact that he points to the non-existence of icons as proof of the fact that there was never a use of icons in the church liturgically um, that's a little bit intellectually dishonest because it fails to acknowledge the reality that the church went through several phases of iconoclasm, both internally and externally. You have, you know, um, the, the iconoclasts in the East, which literally just destroyed icons of all ages, burned them, broke them. That's, that's why they're called iconoclasts, because they broke the icons. Uh, the Muslims, when they came into Christian lands, their iconoclast, they destroyed icons. I invite anybody to go to Thessaloniki and just see for yourselves. And we also have to remember that, you know, the, the Protestants were iconoclasts, were modern iconoclasts. And so there's no way of knowing 
with any certainty of how old the oldest icon is, other than the fact that we have these stories handed down within the church. Yeah. Um, and from uh, someone outside the church that doesn't want to accept that, there's nothing we can do to prove or disprove it. Yeah. Because all of the evidence is has been eradicated. The fundamental argument that the Seventh Ecumenical Council makes is Christological. Because it asks the question, okay, we believe in a Trinitarian God, the second person of which came down and became a real human being in totality. Okay. Therefore, how do you defend that dogmatic reality without an icon? And if you can't, then you must have icons. And that's the conclusion they came up with. Is that ultimately, if you get rid of the icon, you open the door in pretty wide to the possibility of calling into question the incarnation itself. So therefore, it is not a, it, it's an application of dogma. It's not a development. Mm -hmm. And say, okay, well, let's take this seriously. What is our dogma? What does our belief have to say about the use of iconography? Why does iconography, you know, you know? And so, yes, after the restoration of the icons to the churches, icons became... Uh, more of a focal point. They got bigger. Um, you, know, you compare the iconostasis of a church, modern Orthodox church, to what an iconostasis looked like prior to the iconoclasm, there would be a significant difference. Mm -hmm. But that has a, that, that is, a, a, um, again, that's application. We've come to the conclusion that, yeah, we need icons. Yeah. And we're going to make that, that statement yeah. a big statement based on our experience. Well, once you've accepted it. Right. One, it, 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 why dither over right. a size or, right. you know, you know. The, the point is, is it acceptable or not? Right. Yeah. And, and the flip side of, you know, the, the iconoclast argument is, is, you know, this is idolatry. Right. You know, well, or, or at least, it, it lends itself so readily to idolatry, right. and and I think that that was such an important thing for the the council to to do is very clearly differentiate yeah. the difference yeah. between what is worship and what's veneration. There's also a subtext within iconoclasm that's also very important. That's you know missed, and that is you know what is 
our understanding of creation and therefore our relationship with God. Uh, because one of the underpinnings, one of the assumptions of uh, the iconoclastic movement was that wood and paint and varnish is not worthy of depicting these holy things. Well, if that's the case, what does that say about our salvation? What does that say about Christ becoming a human being, taking on creation? If that's not worthy, then again, it comes back to uh, uh, an incarnational Christological question. If the wooden paint isn't worthy, what does that say about us? Because we're made out of the same stuff. We're all created matter. Right. God created us all. And does not that then contradict what God said in Genesis? It's not, you know, these quote-unquote developments are not developments. They're applications, and they're applications according to circumstance. Yeah. New circumstances. You don't, you know, you're not going to have the question of iconoclasm in the second century. So you're not right. going to need to have that answer. However, you are going to need to deal with Gnosticism yeah. and the idea of what is the church. What he, uh, what he sees, yeah. you know. So he says, "Hey, there's, there's, there's no record of art in right. the first two centuries," which is basically true. We don't have any record of, of art. We also don't have any record of anything else, Christian-wise. You can't, right. you can't say, "Where's the Christian houses and where's the Christian tools and the right. utensils and the ox, ox cart that they?" We don't have anything. Right. And we do have things from Jewish culture, you know, that we can say these are distinctively Jewish. Right. We don't have. There, there is no such thing as Christian culture. It appears. Those first couple centuries, which, which makes complete sense. It's not. There's no. There's no Christian race. There's no Christian right. land. There's no Christian money. There's no Christian language. It's not a people. It's, right. it's drawn from all sorts of people. So it, that, that's. It's not surprising that you would say, "Well, where's the well?" It's like, "Where's the Christian anything?" We don't have anything, right. you know, except we have some writings. So he, he sees, he looks at some of the writings, um, you know, from those early times, and, and they're basically polemics for various reasons against uh, you know, the Roman emperor worship, the, the, the cult you know, that, that says the emperor is a god. And, and they, they bring all sorts of arguments against them. Um, and, and, and when I went through and, and look at, you know, what, what, you know, let's see all the various things that people bring up and uh, that, that they say, okay, well, here, here's clearly they're talking about images. And you read them and you look at them in context. 95% of them you can drop immediately. So quite obviously they're talking about what, what is clearly classified as an idol. Right. Easily, clearly, right away you can see it and say that's not the same thing. Right. We're talking about something different. We're talking about just art being used in a, in a sacred context. And we're talking about Roman idols, or pagan idols, if you want to say it that way. The other 5%, you know, 
is a bit more tricky. You have to kind of look at it and think about it a little bit, mm -hmm. but it's such a small percentage, yeah. you know, and then you stack that up against, uh, there's a place called Dura Europus where they found it's the, the oldest known Christian church is house church. The oldest one we have, um, and it has icons in it. It's from, uh, they say, yeah, they're, they're probably from like the two thirties to two fifties. It's from that time frame. And, and, and interestingly enough, in the, the same place, they also find a Jewish synagogue, um, which, uh, you know, one of the, the key underpinnings of, of the whole thought process is Christians, early, you know, original, early, primitive, apostolic Christians are completely anti-image. Um, and we know this because the Jews were completely anti-image. Why wouldn't the Christians be? Of course, it's natural that they would be. And you say, well, that's, that's peculiar because the Jews uh, in the synagogue at Dura Europus which is one of the older ones we have, is also completely full of images. Um, and, and that's, you know, wow, that's, that's curious. Both, you know, it's not like the Jews and the Christians got along. Right. You know, it wasn't like, well, whatever pressures would cause the, the Christians to fall into idolatry. Right. You know, apparently the same pressures caused the Jews to fall into idolatry as well. It's a peculiar thing. Yeah. How do you explain that? You know, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a difficult one, you know. Right. But it does help when you're looking at the 5% of right. the writings that you're like, eh, okay, okay. And the other, the other thing is, is okay, if, if, you know, we want to get into the whole, you know, use of stuff, you know, it's very clear from early on that Christians use water, Christians use wine, Christians use bread in worship, and that divine attributes are placed upon the water, the blood, or the, the, the wine. wine, and the, and the bread. The bread. So therefore, it is, it's not even a half step to saying yeah. that there can be, through the grace of the Holy Spirit, yeah. divine attributes attributed to other created items through the participation of these items mm. in the church. Right. You know, and, and you could apply the same idolatry arguments to those as well. Right. You know, if the church literally from primitive age believes these are the real body and blood of Jesus, you think, wow, what... What more likely scenario would you have for idolatry? Right. You know, in that sense of like seeing something else as a god, when we're saying this is really the the, the body and blood of Jesus. And of course, I yeah. guess if, if there's some worship applied to that, that may not be idolatry at all, since it's it is God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, twisting that around and around, but but yeah, I mean, yeah. you could you could see how people could come up with something there, but there's no mass outcry of well, right. we have to protect this from some right. sort of idolatrous use or you know. Right. Any any change, anything that you can't kind of clearly source, this is the way I saw this, is if you can't clearly source it in Scripture, or at least my interpretation of Scripture, whatever whatever I think it says, or the very earliest writings. So if I can't clearly place it in primitive Christianity, then I can't say it's distinctively Christian. It may or may not be good. It may or may not be okay. But I can't enforce this on anyone else. Yeah. Is that what you're saying that he's saying that? 
I that's what I read out of okay. what he's saying because he's saying like well that and other comments and from the book so maybe I'm drawing inferences from that as well, well. again that's not really my, my first thought when I read that was you believe that the canon of the New Testament is you know pretty much an enforceable thing right, right? those 27 that, that you can't have a Christian group saying no we only accept 20 or we have a couple extra we throw in you know you wouldn't accept that you wouldn't accept the Arian proposition that Christ is a created being. You'd say, no, no, we absolutely have to hold to what was laid out in, in, in the first ecumenical count. Well, you would go, he would go all the way through the fourth. Right. You most know, most, count, most yeah, Protestants Most too. Protestants will. Yeah. And it's like, so how are these different? These are, in, in, what you're de, in what you're declaring, you know, your definitions, you're saying these are developments. You can't source the canon in right. primitive Christianity. It didn't exist. Or in the earliest writings. You can't do that. And if if it was so clearly laid out in primitive Christianity, which we'd say it was there, it had to be defined, but obviously it was a huge argument about the whole Aryan you know, idea right. of who Christ was. They had to nail it down. So in that sense, it was somewhat of a development in his terms. Right. You get what I'm saying. Right. You know, it's like how can you how can you pick and choose right. and say it's, these are okay, but simultaneously I deny the Christianity of the men who were there at that council, right. you know, it's, as not uh, as you said, it's not you know. the, to take that stance is totally unfair, uh, and it's as you, as you just pointed out, it's intellectually dishonest yeah. because you know the whole, the whole idea of what is scripture, as far as the New Testament is concerned, um, was not nailed down by practice until the fourth century. I mean, it's the first time that we see the list of those 27 books. Yeah. Is and even that's not, I mean, you say, well, Athanasius wrote it out, but that's just for Athanasius's right. church. Exactly. He's the bishop there. It's not like he lays it down for the entire church. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, you have, at some point you have to come to terms with the, with the reality, with the fact that Scripture, worship, canon law, decisions of the council, all of these things are done by the church for the church. Yeah. yeah. And to judge these things as anything else by any other criteria um, is unfair and ultimately intellectually dishonest. Or, or, or you know, perhaps ahistorical. You say, okay, fine. Exactly. You may come up with any that's definition that's, you choose, but that's, that's the best. That's the best word, ahistorical, because you know. Um, and so you have to really sort of, if you're honest, you really have to take the whole ball of wax. You have to, and if you're also honest, you can see the um, the line of of. Yeah. Continuity. Of, of continuity, you know. Yes, uh, you know, Athanasius used the word homoousios, which is not in scripture. Yeah. And as I understand it, this is drawn originally from perhaps Gnostic literature. I well, that was, that was the problem that a lot of the anti wouldn't accept it. Right? A lot of the anti Nicene guys initially wouldn't accept the Nicene Creed because homoousios was used by the Gnostics and it wasn't scriptural. Well, then uh, the Nazis went about it and said, okay, fine. If you can't use the word homoousios, what scriptural word can you use 
that doesn't allow the Aryans to say what they say. Yeah. And you can't find it. And you can't find it. So therefore, we used Oosios. It does the job. It does the job, exactly. (laughs) There's no wiggle room when you use there. The Aryans cannot do what they do and say what they say if we all say Oosios. And so therefore, you know... It's, but you wouldn't find you wouldn't find apostles saying Lucius. As no. far as we know, Jesus never says this. I mean, he might have. We don't know, but, but most likely no. But it's yeah, again, the guys from the first three centuries didn't have to, yeah, because they didn't have Arius showing up. Yeah, once Arius shows up and you know challenges the whole notion of who is Jesus Christ. Yeah, suddenly you have to make that okay. If I'm going to defend the faith as it was passed down to me, I'm going to have to deal with this in a way that the next generation will be able to carry on mm-hmm. without fear of another areas. Yeah. And so we're going to use the word Lucius. And it, that word defeated Arianism in essence. Yeah. I mean, Arianism held on for many centuries, but it was, but eventually it died out. Yeah. Um, And we're still here. I found the book perplexing in parts because there's he's simultaneously spanking the the evangelicals. Or forgetting who they are and where they came from, and you're so disconnected from history, and you got to reconnect, and there's all these problems. And at the same time, this kind of triumphalist feeling of we're the best thing since sliced bread, and um, basically the the best hope for Christianity in a postmodern world. You know, this is kind of like um, which I don't want to go into that, but but just this feeling of you know the the you know the that there's something kind of so great about what was going on and, and I couldn't quite figure out <laughs> why yeah. uh, you know and, and I looked at it and I, and I, I just thought you know you, you've got this trajectory of increasing clarity of what it means to be a Christian how it means to be a Christian which I think makes the most sense when you look at scripture and what we were told the Holy Spirit was going to come to lead us into all truth you know which, which to me would suggest that we're actually going to be led into all truth, right. you know, as opposed to maybe less and less. But that the less and less is what you see right. from the time of Luther. You got Luther, and, and then within ten years, he and Zwingli are, you know, calling each other all sorts of horrible, ugly things over because right. they can't come together yeah, in the sacraments. Sure. And from there, it's less and less. It's and actually, now what Protestants have. Well, it's actually sooner. Very very little things. It's yeah. it's sooner than that. It's it's earlier than that. You can you can start tracing. Um, this this less and less back to um, the Holy Roman Empire. You hear the seeds that led to the split from East and West are planted as early as the Holy Roman Empire uh, in, in, in France. Um, and you have this political necessity in Rome of um, which we are what's left of the Roman Empire here out in the West. Mm-hmm. And we're the source of stability. So therefore, we're going to take on our shoulders this political 
aspect of making sure that people are safe and that there is this, you know, stability between kings. So therefore you have to come to us in order to be able to be recognized as a true king. And we're going to find documentation to prove the fact that we can do this. And in a lot of those cases, they're forgeries. And once you take that step, you know, it begins this process of this detachment from the historical church until finally, when you have this schism between the East and the West, uh, that's the fertile bed that you have created in Western Christendom from whence a Luther comes. Because prior to Luther, there were guys trying to reform the Catholic Church. Right. And they remained within the confines of the Church because Rome always had at the back of their mind, I've got to deal with these Christians. I've, I've got to deal with them on some level. So therefore, I can't just get rid of these guys. Yeah. I have to deal with them. You have to make the intellectual theological arguments. Well, when Luther had come along, Constantinople had fallen. And so Rome was by themselves. Oh, look, I don't have to deal with the Eastern guys anymore. In fact, that's sort of a proof that yeah, we're right. We're right. <laughs> so therefore, Luther, you're excommunicated. I don't have to deal with you guys anymore. That was something that frustrated me before I even started looking into history. Um, and, and, and this is, was, was explicitly taught, this idea of, of the, the core Christian. You know, this is what it means to be a Christian. And there are very few things in this core circle. And, and in college, this is, this is what I was, you know, was explicitly taught. Here's the core. Everything else, you know, varying degrees of tolerance. But the core was, was just very few things. Ironically, many of them from you know the councils. You know, it's kind of the you know, if you fully God, fully man, the, you know, right. the, these sorts of things. Um, and, and yet, and, and this, I think this is a sense in in the Protestant realm of what it means to have unity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you see it, you know, uh, in the ecumenical movements right. that are out there. Like, okay, well, here, let's just let's lay down what we can believe. Let's recreate. Right. You know, and you see the there's the what's it, Lasan. Right. I think it's come a couple of times, you know. But but you see, it's just there's so there's fewer and fewer sure, things. It's, it's, it's a reduction yeah. rather than and, and even yeah. some of the external kind of kind of the more things. I guess now they would call them things, you know, things like you know, do we or do we not ordain women? Right. Um, how about homosexual marriage? Right. You, think, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, everyone agreed on these things. Right. Uh, nowadays, not so much. Not so much. And what will it be tomorrow? <laughs> You know, so is that the path? And you, that this, you know, this is in the back of my mind. Is is this really working? No. You know, are, are we are we getting fewer and fewer denominations? That would be just a nice gross measurement. Of, right. You know, I, I think that's a reasonable measurement of unity. Right. You know, if right. a denomination says I'm different from this other denomination, they're that's inherently right. saying we are to some degree not. You know, we're yeah. we're not in unity. Part of it 
you know, is this whole, and I harp on this because it's important, um, this whole intellectualization of God in the Western world. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I just watched a movie called The Thirteenth Floor, which um, the, the opening quote the day at the beginning of the movie was, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. And I hadn't thought about that particular statement for a really long time, because I'm not much into um, uh, Descartes and philosophy and those kinds of things. I am, but I'm not. And it's not one of those things I actively read, but yeah. um, it just struck me how dangerous that statement is. Um, on, on a couple of different levels. You know, I am is the name of God. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. So therefore, because I think I am God, yeah. on that level, it's dangerous. And you see that expressed so much in the modern world where we have uh, people, philosophies, governments, politicians, political parties reaching for things that are properly God's. Um, and whole oh, society is saying that you know, we have the ability to decide everything for people and, and the disasters that happen because of it. Um, but the other half of that is I think. Mm -hmm. So in other words, let's reduce humanity yeah. and what it means to be human mm -hmm. to the ability to think. Mm -hmm. And that is the determinant of what is human, what is divine. And so therefore, when you divorce the rest of what it means to be human mm -hmm. from the divine, it's, it's one of the reasons why the Protestant world is so um, anti-ecclesial, anti-liturgical. Um, and there's this complete loss of that ontological relationship with God. Mm -hmm. you know, in a world where the human being is merely the ability to think, this whole idea of the body and blood makes no sense whatsoever. Why do I need that? Because I think about God, I think about Christ, therefore mm -hmm. I believe, therefore that's all yeah. I need. Or, or it's at least vastly about the more important thing, right. which is basically the subtext of what you hear, what you learn, as a Protestant, is your relationship with God begins with more or less a mental action right. and basically carries on for the rest of your life as something that kind of, it's an internal thing. Right. And of course, there's all kinds of problems with taking that direction. You know, what do you do with um, the fetus? Mm -hmm. It's a human being that is incapable of thought. Yeah. So therefore, are they not human? And that is indeed a stance that the United States has taken. They are not human. You know, what about the severely retarded person who is not capable of thinking for themselves? Are they not human? What happens to the person with Alzheimer's? Do they cease being human? And, and of course, you know, from um, an Orthodox perspective, it's just, of course not. All of these are human in its fullness. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it is our responsibility to embrace 
Yeah. All of it. In all of its diversity. In all of its brokenness. And not to, not to reject reductionism right. when it comes to that. Exactly. You know, and once, once you make that intellectual choice, that step, to say we can categorize humanity by reducing what it means to be humanity to an aspect of it, whether it's, you know, to, to say that to be human is to think is the same as to be human is to have white skin. It's the same as saying to be human is to be a non-Jew. To be human is to have brown eyes, not blue eyes. To be human is you know, to be a male, not a female. Yeah. And once you make that reduction, mm. you're heading down a path towards slavery, genocide, um, second class, the whole nine yards. Yeah. Once you once you take that step, you have uh, legitimized all of the atrocities that have been made in the name of yeah. racism, sexism, uh, whatever ism you want to make. Yeah. It, you've legitimized it. All of it. Which is one of the reasons why I think, at least in Western Christendom, you have the just war theology. Why churches, national churches in World War I said, go forth and do your nation proud, which is one of the reasons why your European churches are in such sore shape today, is that, you know, there's this huge disconnect between, you know, for that generation, there's a whole lost generation. Uh, you know, they associated Christianity with the atrocities of World War One because the churches encouraged the men, you know, the nations to do this. Mm -hmm. What does that say about God? Well, the reason that, you know, ultimately they were able to get to go there is because you've reduced humanity to this piece of gray matter in between your ears. And, and you don't take into consideration anything else. Because, mm -hmm. you know, um, I was in a conversation with somebody, uh, Catholic, um, who, you know, said, well, we're, we're getting into this disagreement because of this whole just war differentiation with Orthodox and Catholics. Yeah, all war. All war is sinful. Period. End of story. The closest we have ever come to a just war, uh, theology is Basil saying, okay, sure. War, in a political sense, is necessary in terms of, you know, Christian empire versus pagan invader. So if the empire says, go to war, go to war, however, even if you never make it to the front lines, even if you're a medic and all you do is treat the wounded, even if you never see battle, you must repent as if you did kill somebody. Because war is sinful. Period. End yeah. of story. Yeah. Going back to apostolic succession. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm tying this back in with kind of this reductionist thing. I guess really the sense that, that there is the limiter 
with Protestant denominational splitting and kind of schismville is stemming from kind of the invisible church break that the reformers made. There is no sense in which there is a community, right. a, a church. Um, I was thinking, uh, leaving that, backing up to apostolic succession, he says, and he makes a really peculiar statement. He says, I, I accept ecclesiastical succession as definitely there you know, from the beginning. I don't agree with apostolic succession. So I thought, well, okay, he, he must be drawing it as needed. Which, which you know, of course, yeah, it's, it's hard to read the early writings and not see ecclesiastical succession. It's, it's right there from the beginning. Right. Irenaeus and Clement, you can even see it in, in shades in the New Testament, it, right. if you're willing to kind of go there. Definitely the seeds are there. Right. You can see it in, in, in various right. things, you know. But he's drawing some line. There's some difference. You got the, you know, yes, you know, the, the bishops were supposed to produce more bishops. There was supposed to be this sort of governmental structure, right. in a sense. I assume he means by that that what he, he thinks of as apostolic succession is bishops being able to kind of declare new dogmas and kind of, you know, just kind of, in a sense, act the way the apostles act and lay out new revelation. Um, one thing I, I and, and this is a thought, and you can tell me whether you think this is accurate in orthodox thinking or not. Uh, it, it seems that there is a difference in, in the way orthodox approach succession, mm-hmm. this whole thing of succession versus perhaps Roman Catholic thinking on it, where in, in Roman Catholic bill, you know, succession is, is, is centered really strongly on the bishop mm-hmm. and it's almost a kind of a, a mechanical process. Once a person's been made a bishop, they're always a bishop, mm-hmm. in a sense, I guess, unless the Pope kind of defrocks them or something, but, mm-hmm. and that's in, in, which is kind of how they could see like Anglicans or some of these others, right. though I think at this point they say officially they've all lost it at some point along the lines, mm-hmm. but theoretically. Even a bishop in schism remains a bishop because it's this almost this kind of mechanical process. It's, it's the formula thing has happened and they are what they are in themselves where it seems like, uh, and this is, I, I, I said this in response to him. I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping this is accurate and you can tell me if it's not that in Orthodox thinking, it might be more correct to say the succession centers in the community, mm-hmm. that the bishop as in a sense, kind of the lead representative is almost, he's kind of the marker. He does have a succession strip, you know, but it, it almost serves as the marker for succession. But the reality of the succession is the community, the community goes forward. The, you know, the bishop dies. It's not like the bishop lays hands on the next bishop. Right. You know, the, you know, the bishop, he's, he's approved by the community. He's also approved by external bishops. So right. you get internal and external witness to the truth right. of this guy's theology. He is accurately reflecting what we are. He is our representative. Yeah. But it's the community that succeeds. Right. That, that is. I think that's a very good way of putting it. Um, because, you know, what's a bishop without a community? Right. And, you know, and in the Orthodox Church, I don't know what it is in the Catholic Church today, but in the Orthodox Church, in order to be ordained as a bishop, you have to have three bishops. Right. Ordain that person, which which is it, right. which is uh, and and not specific in a, in, a, in a hierarchical sense, like it has to be the patriarch of Constantinople. Right. The you know, no, it's it's yeah, but what it what that in essence does is it says that the community at large, the church at large, is present in these three bishops mm-hmm. to make this person, this one individual, a a bishop for the church at large so that you know there there isn't this sense of this personal succession yeah rather that is it is a communal communal 
succession personified by the bishop. And, and doesn't this, it seems to me that this serves as a really handy check and balance. Mm -hmm. Since a person, since a community can't ordain their own bishop. And I'm oh, sorry, when I say community in that terms, I'm thinking of like a local yeah. parish yeah. Uh, or even maybe a diocese in, in kind of current terms. Right. But you can't have this group just say, hey, we're going off on our own right. and uh, and we're just going to, you know, and, and there you have, you know, this, this schism and you're just kind of doing your own thing. There's, there's no check. Right. But by forcing external ordination, right. you have to have community approval. But in the community there, I mean, there, there's this global this, general. Yeah, there, yeah. There's this, you know, there's, there's this idea that we continue to uphold and believe what all of these other bishops and the whole idea of being in communion with each other is all centered around the idea, the person, the person of the bishop. I'm not in communion with Rome because my bishop isn't in communion with Rome. Right. But because my bishop is in communion with the, this Russian bishop over here, mm -hmm. I'm in communion with the, that mm -hmm. Russian church. Right. You know, so it's, you know, it's a relational thing. Right. It's not a yeah. personal. I mean, it's but, not but a, the bishop doesn't go off on his own. Right. It, obviously, it's a position of leadership, and, and it is a position of power. There is a place that where decisions have to be made. Right. The person who, who takes charge and leads, and and there's no question this is this is absolutely primitive Christianity. You can't right. deny it. Right. Get over it. Moving on. Uh, that that's if you're going to say this is what the church looked like. That's what the church looked like right. um, you know, from early on. Um, but th this bishop is not some sort of all powerful entity. Right. No. That, and they don't they don't go off. So, so it really is the community at large that succeeds, and in that sense, it, it is that community that uh, continues right. till today. That, that it still exists; it's still there. You, you, you even and, that, and it holds the promises, uh, you know, that, that were given in the New Testament, right. which I think is, is it's it that I think that's the point where people are breaking down and missing it. If you're not a Christian and you're looking at New Testament church history the whole bit and you don't believe in God, then you can you can absolutely think things went off the rail as quickly as you want. Yeah. Who cares? Whatever. Right. You know, there's there's no guarantee that it didn't. Right. As a Christian, however, I don't you can't go back and look at and there's seven, eight, nine really good, solid, great promises right. that 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 are descriptions of the church. Yeah. That it wouldn't fail, that it would be led in all truth, that it wouldn't right. be left in orphan, that Jesus would be with us in the end of the age, yeah. that we would have unity, that yeah. you know, the pillar and foundation of the church, and uh, the truth. I mean, all these things, and you say, how can you take all this, paint this picture of this thing, which is the church? Not an abstract set of ideas, but right. an actual people, community, succeeding, and say that that ever went off the rails. Right. If, you if, know, if God if, was present. If your reading of history yeah. says it went off the rails, then. You're, you're saying scripture's not true. Right. You're, what you're saying, ultimately, is is that I know better than God, yeah. and then God lies. Yeah. And God, God fails on his promises. Yeah. Because apparently, in, in this case, you could say in, in a real sense, he left the entirety of Christianity, schism, east-west, the whole bit, 
right. up until basically the Reformation right. in a state of, of gross idolatry right. when it comes to iconography is what I'm right. referring to. If you're going with that route, like if you're saying, okay, the first 200 years, we're good to go. Right. After that, we can see churches have idols in them. Right. And that continues until the reformers, particularly Calvin, throws them out. Right. Then so the Holy God? Spirit. Where's God? Where's the Holy Spirit? Where's the promise? Yeah. Where's, you know. That's a serious sin. It's all over the New Old Testament. You know, God yeah. doesn't let that slide. No. So what was happening for 1,300 years? Yeah. That's, you know, that's one of the serious problems with the whole Protestant argument is, is if, you, if we look at the way God makes his promises, he doesn't, he doesn't renege. He, he keeps those promises, um, which is one of the reasons why we as Christians, if we are anti-Semitic in any way, shape, or form, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves because God promised them that they were his people and they will always be his people period um uh but yeah i mean that's that's what ultimately that's where the conclusion that you have to make if you're going to say that the church went off the rails well then jesus lied because he said that there is nothing that will assail this church it will always be there there's nothing that can destroy it yeah. What you just said is that human corruption is so powerful yeah. that it can overcome Christ himself. And if that's the case, why are you a Christian? Yeah. Or God's a liar. Yeah. Or he changed his mind. Yeah. None, none of which we know. Yeah. It can be true. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, it's you, you start going down a rabbit hole. It's so, just Somewhere happens. you have to begin yeah. accepting things. Right. You know. Which I think is always the the peculiar question, which is why do I believe what I believe? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I believe certain things about God and, and the Bible and what it says and how I relate to Him, but I can't really tell you why, mm-hmm. in, in the sense of I don't know where this came from. Mm-hmm. I just you just make the blind assumption that well, of course it's clear in the Bible, despite the fact that <laughs> glaringly <laughs> obvious that there's a, there's a church you know half a block away mm-hmm. that will have a completely different understanding of what the Bible clearly says. And before we went off on this tangent, by the way, I want to complete this thought. <laughs> okay. Um, you see the ordination process in action, in acts. With, uh, uh, yeah, the... With the, de- with the deacons, the seven deacons. Oh, yeah, I was thinking of... Uh, of um, uh, replacing Judas, right? Uh, That's with, uh, you know, and he says, "Hey, let another take his his, right. his you know episcopate." Which I mean, you can say, "What are the, what does this word mean?" But you know, it definitely was meant to to you know to stay around. Yeah, but okay, um, deacons, so you're, you're taking a different angle. I'm taking a different angle I'm taking, because they said, "Okay, bring to us these." They say to the people, mm-hmm. "Bring to us people of good repute." So. By the judgment of the community as a whole, yeah. these seven guys are up, upstanding Christians. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, it is not a matter of the bishop says, you're my guy. Come here, let me lay my hands on you. 
No, it is a communal process of these are the guys that we think are going to be best for this role as a community. And then they're ordained. So it's not a, you know, it's not this, you know, um, succession in the same way that, you know, dynasties are, you know, mm. you know my son and his yeah, son. It's, like, yeah. it's, there's almost an, you know, it's, it's a body that decides these things. It's not yeah. a single person. Yeah. So. There, yeah, there's always, you can always find, you know, the, the, the exception, the historical exception. Right. You know, some time period when things were not the way they should have been. Right. But, yeah, but that, you know, and there's where the, you know, it's always kind of funny. I'm trying to think what the name is. There's, there's a group of people, and I, I can't, <laughs> that, that think, uh, you know, uh, basically it's almost like a Roman Catholic conspiracy theory, you know, it's, it's Latin for like the empty chair, empty throne, or something like this, the name of what they call these things, uh, these people, but it's, it's you know, the, the Pope is not the legitimate Pope, because we'll go back and there was this irregularity of whatever form, fill in the blank, with the succession, and that's where it breaks, so there is no legitimate Pope. You know, at this time, because there's some mechanical problem. Anytime you have a succession that relies on that sort of, right. you know, well, did they, did they, were they standing on one leg or two? Right. How did they, you know? Whereas I think if you if you look at succession as it's the body of Christ, it does not fail, you know, and, and the body entire continues to succeed. Right. There's there's that, a whole, those things become irrelevant. Yeah, there's there's we there's a whole. <laughs> When I hear things like that, mechanical issues yeah. of that's the way it seems to me. Yeah, I, when I read these, it's right? But formulaic. I don't know what you want to say. But it's called for, formally. It's called you can call it a form of docetism, which was a, a I forget if I think it was a schism or a heresy. I can't remember what was classified. There's so many. How do you keep track? I know. <laughs> um, but in essence, what they said was that. If the priest or the bishop is not pure, mm. then their prayers are not effective. And their baptisms. The and their baptisms or the, or the gifts or, or anything. So, so this, is the, this is during the time of Rome persecution right. where they said, okay, if you're not a Christian, you have to sacrifice right. probably to the, perhaps an idol of the, of the emperor right. at that time. And those who did were considered... Collapsed. They weren't pure. Yeah, Lapsed, yeah. yeah. And so therefore, you know, uh, you, and so therefore what in essence they said through this whole process is that um, God and the Holy Spirit will, will not work through a sinner. Okay, well that... Just eliminated. <laughs> you the got whole problems. <laughs> okay. Just eliminated the whole church there. Um, but in essence, we know better than God where God is going to work and how God works. Yeah. And it's the whole "I'm holier than." It's one of the earliest "I'm holier than thou" attitudes within the Christian yeah. church, and it, and it was rejected by the church. Um, that's not how God works. That's not how the church works. Um, you know, and even if we do have this mechanical problem 
and you know, there's you know, I'm, one rumor that one of the popes was a woman. You know, yeah, Pope, you know. uh, Pope Joan. Regardless of whatever mechanical problem you come up with, <laughs> does that mean the Holy Spirit didn't work? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the Holy Spirit is, you know, my, my, my favorite comeback to that. So it was okay. You know, the Holy Spirit spoke through Barlam's donkey. I'd like to use a different word. <laughs> there, you there, you there, there. there. <laughs> if, if, if the Holy Spirit could speak through a donkey, Certainly, he can speak through me, sir. Yeah, you know, and you know, there are there are days when I'm standing in front of that altar, where my mind is on everything but what I'm doing. Right, and you know, does that mean that the Eucharist that I'm giving that day is any less effective yeah. than? Those days where my focus is, you know, like a laser beam on on, on every word of every prayer. Yeah. Um, it, it happens despite me. Mm -hmm. um, that one of my the, 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 one of the prayers that we do as a priest, you know, right as we switch from the liturgy of the word to the liturgy of the Eucharist, is <laughs> no one is worthy to serve you. No one is worthy of doing what I am about to do. So please forgive me and do not let my sinfulness get in the way of what you are about to do. Right. It's not about me. Everything that happens during a liturgy happens because the Holy Spirit descends. Mm. The fact that we have gathered and asked for that to happen is, you know, mm -hmm. there's a sort of a mechanical sense of that, but it, the fact that there is anything that happens at all is because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is He who, who guides us to gather in the first place. It is the Holy Spirit that brings us together at the church. It is the Holy Spirit that, you know, f fell upon me when I was ordained in the first place. It is the Holy Spirit that allows us to comprehend and understand the gospel. It is the Holy Spirit that descends upon the gifts and makes them into the body and blood. So that there's this, you, yeah. you have to have that faith and that understanding that, and this comes back to your point, you know, the Holy Spirit will reveal the truth. And if, in, in essence, what you were saying is that sometime in the fourth century, the Holy Spirit disappeared. It didn't reappear until yeah. 1,300 years later. And, excuse me. You know, we cannot say that God, I mean, God, God himself says, the Spirit will go where he wills. And you can't say, you know, and again, if he can speak through a donkey, He's going to be able to do anything, speak through anything, work through anything to reveal the truth of God, period. Even a despicable, sinful human being. I mean, it's right there in the scriptures, Caiaphas, Caiaphas, the guy who ordered the death of Christ, spoke by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So to say that somehow corrupt human beings are incapable of, of being the 
vessel through which the Holy Spirit carries on and reveals the truth is, is rejected right there in Scripture. In the Nicene Creed, when it says, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, that, that this, isn't a, this isn't a statement of truths about the church, right. though it is. But rather, it's a statement of belief right. in the church. Right. The church, not the things about the church. Not even Christianity. You're not a system. But it's, I believe, that, that there is one holy Catholic apostolic church, of which I'm part, I guess, right. by, by extension. And one of the things that we have to, I have to insert here is that there's a fundamental difference between the, how the Orthodox understand the word Catholic and the way the Roman Catholic Church understands Catholic. Yeah. Um, in the modern Western world, Catholic means universal, and that's not what it means. What it means is whole. I believe that in the whole Church that there is this one unity. Right. There's this one entity, whole entity, right. and that this Catholicity extends beyond geography and time. And, and, and it's wholeness in, in all sorts of sense. Right. It's not merely a geographical right. description, but it's it's a wholeness of the faith and and uh, you know and a wholeness really of, of practice. I guess in a worship, it's it's a wholeness in all sense of the, of the terms. Yeah. Uh, you you've read the, my father? You know Father Lawrence's his um, uh, analogy of the hologram. Yeah. Which at first I was kind of like. Struggling because this is this was when I read this. This was early on in my thinking, right. so this was kind of like uh, mind blown, you know. Right. <laughs> but, you know, because you, you, I, I could see what he meant. Right. I mean, but yeah. but the stopping and saying, okay, but do I agree with you? Know, like, does right. that make sense? How does that work? Right. You know, it's an interesting thought. Well, I, I love it. It's a, I think it's a beautiful analogy to do this. You know, uh, holographic film, and you look at it, and it's a jumbled mess. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. But you shine a light through it. Yeah, and suddenly there's this, there's this beautiful image of right. you know whatever, whatever 3D image of a flower or a rose I think is the one he uses. Yeah, I think so. Well, if you cut this in half, right. this you film in half, you shine a light through the smaller one. Yeah. Either half, you don't get half a rose. You don't get half a rose. The, the whole rose is still there. It doesn't matter how small you cut that right. piece of film, you still get the, the catholicity of the rose is still there. Piece. And the light, of course, is Christ. Yeah. Doesn't matter how big your little parish is. Right. Once you shine the light of Christ, yeah, that wholeness, yeah, is still there. I I, I like that you know Paul brings up the metaphor, and I, obviously DNA is way past Paul's. Mind. <laughs> I'm going to extend Paul's metaphor because I, I, I think it makes perfect sense in so many ways. I love the metaphor of the body, right. you know. But if you say okay. You know, you know where exactly is your DNA kept? You know, is it is it your body? You know, like if you cut your body in half, do you now have half the DNA? No, every single cell in your body has the catholicity of you. Right. Well, physical sense. Yeah, the whole, you know, every piece of information every piece of information necessary for you to exist. Every single Floyd Rogers, yeah, I'm sure it's exactly black ball men. It works, is though. Tom Fahey for Opus 6, numbers 25 and 26. Jazz R for 6, 8, and Taxi. Alistair Cameron for 
Gentle Marimba, Charles Atlas for Photosphere, Dexter Britton for Collapsing Time, Fabrizio Paterlini for Veloma. I also use tracks from Chris Zabriskie, including Prelude Number 7 and 17, and a song titled, this is no joke, that kid in fourth grade who really liked the Denver Broncos. I'm sure somewhere Chris Zabriskie is laughing right now at everyone having to read that title. You can find all these fine tracks and more at freemusicarchive.org. Thanks for listening.